Good morning. Let's open class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity again to come and study. And we ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us. Our hearts together in unity with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements. Uh, we, As you know, I made an announcement a few weeks ago. Tell our people online, we have had uh, the problems with our Apple apps because of some administrative issue. You know, we have to sign a contract, they updated a contract. I signed the contract for the ministry, but somehow that didn't get whatever. It's still not up. Francesca's coming back on Monday, and I will put Francesca on running down the administrative stuff, and hopefully the apps will be back online. Um, that's all of our apps on the Apple side. If you're on the Android side, I don't think that's messed up at all. So hopefully those will be back up, including the Remedy app. Now, also, good news, the, the DVD for the Sanctuary Feast Days uh, seminar is now available. We ship these at no cost anywhere in America. So if you want some to share, just email us at our request. Uh, email address requests at comeandreason.com, and we will ship those out to you. Now, our lesson today is Lesson 7, Book of Acts, uh, Paul's first missionary journey. And before we get actually into the lesson, I need to follow up, or want to follow up, on the question of Ananias and Sapphira, because I've gotten multiple emails over the last few weeks regarding the position that I put out in the class on Lesson 3. And if you remember, I put out the position that God was not inflicting punishment for sin, and we went through the evidences of that, and I'll just review that briefly. And then the concerns that people had, because people emailed several quotations from the Acts of the Apostles on the same chapter that I used, and where it seems to say that, and we'll review that. So the, if you remember, I went through three possibilities on the death of Ananias and Sapphira. One, that God was actually using power to punish them for sin. And we examined why that really couldn't be the case, because... Punishment for sin is eternal non-existence, not a death and sleep from which you rise again. And the punishment for sin doesn't come until after the judgment, the great white throne judgment, which hadn't happened yet. So this had to be something other than punishment for sin. But we also looked at the possibility this was just natural death and didn't make sense that this was just like dying of natural causes. Dying of shock was a possibility. And then God intervening to put them to sleep for a larger purpose a therapeutic reason for the early church. And then we read a quotation out of the Acts of the Apostles where she goes on to describe that very thing, that the early church was vulnerable to the corruption of their influence if they had become leaders from their donation of the property and their, that, then their deceptive character leading out in the church. The church was cor- uh, open to that type of corruption. And so this was a therapeutic intervention. And, this, and the quote is from Acts of the Apostles 73. You can check that out it's in the notes. Well, it, it says, and she finished up uh, with with a little statement that uh, that God cannot be mocked, and I reminded people of Galatians six, seven, and eight, which says, "Do not be deceived; God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction." And what's the Bible describing there? The law of cause and effect, sowing and reaping, design law. You corrupt your character, then you will reap destruction. In the end. So I received emails, though, referencing quotes from the same chapter, and I want to explore those, and there are two issues to address as we explore these quotes. One, was God actually punishing or inflicting punishment for sin? And two, how I use Ellen White quotes, which is some suggest that I pick and choose quotes uh, to try to give a view I want and ignore other quotes that might undermine that view. And so we want to address that idea of how I use quotes if I'm doing a reasonable job or not. Here's the quote we're going to go through. It's Acts of the Apostles, page 75. And the earlier quote, I think, was page 73, so it's a couple pages later. It is God who blesses men with property, and he does this that they may be able to give toward the advancement of his cause. He sends sunshine and the rain, He causes vegetation to flourish. He gives health and the ability to acquire means. All our blessings come from his bountiful hand. Pause. Did you notice the first sentence? He blesses men with property. And then was described a mechanism or a method whereby that happens. Did you notice the mechanism or did that kind of slip by you? It was like, well, that was just kind of poetry. He blesses men with property for the advancement of his cause, and here's what it says. He sends sunshine and rain. He causes vegetation to flourish. He gives health and ability to acquire means. All our blessings come from his bountiful hand. What mechanism or method is being described that God provides us with 
properties and, and means. Design law, exactly right. This is not some magical poof. I went home and there was a bag of gold in my living room. That's not how it happens. Okay? So this is the mechanism. Get your mind around now where we're going. This is the mechanism to strive for God to bestow blessings. Do you think the mechanism for negative consequences is different? If the mechanism to bless you is through design law, what is the mechanism that causes the pain and the suffering? Okay, let's see. Let's, let's unfold it. Here goes the continue with the quote. But the hearts of men become hardened through selfishness. And Ananias and Sapphira, and like Ananias and Sapphira, they are tempted to withhold part of the price while pretending to fulfill God's requirements. How do hearts become hardened? According to this quote, through selfishness. What causes the hardening? What is the problem that results when a heart becomes hardened? Is there a punishment that is experienced when one has a hardened heart? We just read the one who sows to the carnal nature from that nature reaps. So is there a problem with engaging in selfishness that hardens your heart? Is that an infliction from God that you would not otherwise receive if he wasn't somehow acting to cause it? Or is this his design law, how things work? Keep on with the quote. Many spend money lavishly in self-gratification. Men and women consult their pleasure and gratify their taste while they bring to God almost unwillingly a stinted offering. They forget that God will one day demand a strict account of how his goods have been used and that he will no more accept the pittance they hand into the treasury than he accepted the offering of Ananias and Sapphira. Pause. Let's think about that. You notice how I'm making you think about what's being said. Okay? There will be an accounting demanded. Well, what, what does that mean? What kind of accounting? Count, accounting like humans do, where you actually have a book and you go through and you count all the pennies. And Is that what you're talking about? Or is it an accounting of one's character? Where does you think God is examining to do the accounting? From now, now we're going to get into the, I think, the paragraphs that people had problems with, but I want to give a little context there. From the stern punishment meted out on those perjurers, God would have us learn also how deep is his hatred and contempt for all hypocrisy and deception. What is the purpose of this sentence? To whom might this sentence be aimed? Do you think this sentence is written for the people who were like Moses, friends of God, and know him very well? Or is this sentence for people not as close to God and don't know him very well? What is the purpose of this? From the stern punishment meted out on those perjurers. Keep on with the quote. In pretending that they had given all, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they lost this life and the life that is to come. The same God who punished them today condemns all falsehood. Lying lips are an abomination to him. He declares that into the holy city there shall in no wise enter anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie. Let truth-telling be held with no loose hand or uncertain grasp. Let it become a part of the life, playing fast and loose with truth, and dissembling to suit one's own selfish plans means shipwreck of faith. Pause. What is the problem with lying? It shipwrecks the faith. Which means what? What does it mean to have your faith shipwrecked? It destroys you. It, it actually damages you, yes. Is this damage when you lie and deceive something that God inflicts on you? Can a liar and deceiver avoid the damage if they persist in lying and deceiving. If you jab a pencil in your eye, can you avoid pain and blindness? You see, this is describing again design law. Let's keep going here. 
And what is it that God hates? Does God hate the person who lies? Or does he hate the lying that destroys the person he loves? What is it he hates? Does a parent hate a child who does drugs? Or does parent hate the drugs the child is doing? Keep on with the quote. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about you with truth, Ephesians 6.14. He who utters untruths sells his soul in a cheap market. His falsehoods may seem to serve in emergencies. He may thus seem to make business advances that he could not gain by fair dealing, but he finally reaches the place where he can trust no one. Himself a falsifier, he has no confidence in the words of others. What's being described? Uh, on what, though? Where's the effect happening? Who's being changed by the liar's lies? The liar's being changed. This is design law at work. Let's keep going with the quote. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the sin of fraud against God was speedily punished. The same sin was often repeated in the after in the after history of the church and is committed by many in our time. But though it may not be attended by visible manifestations of God's displeasure, it is no less heinous in his sight now than in the apostles' time. The warning has been given. God has clearly manifest his abhorrence to the sin and all who give themselves up to hypocrisy and covetousness may be sure that they are destroying their own souls. Who is destroying their souls? According to this quote. They're destroying their own souls. If they're destroying their own souls, how is this punishment from God? In the same quote that we talked about God's speedy punishment, it's if you do this, you're destroying your own souls. So how do we understand it? When God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you sin, you shall surely die. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, is that talking the death that Samson died when he brought the pillars down? The death that Daniel died at the end of his old age? Is that what it's talking about? What death did Ananias and Sapphira die? The first death or the second death? First death. So is that the punishment for sin? How do we? It's not. It's just by definition and not the punishment for sin. Yet the word punishment has been used. So how do we understand it? And why did I not include these quotes earlier? Well, human beings are at different levels of moral development. Does God love only the mature or does he love the immature as well? Does God speak only to the mature or does he speak a language for the immature as well? If a child is unruly and continues to put themselves in danger by playing on the farm equipment or running into the street, what does a loving parent do? Does a loving parent discipline? But if the child, in the child's mind, where does the child understand the pain and suffering to be coming from? The farm equipment, the car, or the parent? So in the child's mind, might the child view this as punishment from the parent? The parent is a punishing parent. And so the parent, because of the immaturity of the child, steps in and takes on their shoulders the role of the inflictor of punishment. Is the real danger for the child from the parent? No. 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 It's from the farm equipment or the car. But because the child cannot understand the larger reality, the loving parent does this. The child finally grows up, hopefully matures to the point, they realize that the punishment was never coming from the parent. Even though at some point in time they said, you know what, if I actually go and play on the farm equipment to their neighbor, my mom's going to punish me. But that was never really the punishment. World War II, a troop ship was hit by a torpedo and was sinking. Uh, water was flooding into the sections where the, where the soldiers were. There was abject panic. The officers on deck uh, were trying to get them up the stairs and the ladders, but, but as one person would jump on, another person would yank them off, and another person would jump on. The officers on top were shouting down to try to get order, but they were so panicked they weren't listening, and suddenly shots rang out, and an officer shot down into the compartment, killing a few people. Order was restored, and the rest got out. Did the officer who shot into the hold hate his soldiers? Yes or no? No. Did he hate the soldiers drowning? Yes. Did he hate the soldiers' refusal to listen to his previous commands? Yes. 
Were his actions cruel? Were those shot, those who the bullets happened to hit, punished for their refusal to listen? Or were his actions actions of redemption to save as many as he could? This is God throughout the Bible. This is what was happening with Ananias and Sapphira. For the benefit of the emerging church and throughout history, the immature look at the example and they realize the dangers of lying and cheating. And in their childlike understanding, they might be afraid that God will hurt them so they stop lying and cheating and they won't do that. Hopefully growing up to the point to realize that the lying and cheating would destroy their own soul as we just read. And realize God was never the real source of the problem. Ellen White grew up in her understanding. The following quote was written by her in the 1890s while she was exiled to Australia. She sent it to Uriah Smith, who at the time was the editor of The Signs. He couldn't make sense of it, most likely because he was spiritually too immature at the time, in a legal model stuck still. So he filed it in the magazine's files, where it wasn't found until the 1950s. And then it was put in the selected messages, and you can find it in First Selected Messages, page 235. And this is what it says. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sins. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. What is being described here? What kind of law? Who who enacted or created those laws? Who sustains the operation of those laws? So God is working constantly through his designs, through his methods, through his laws, through the sustaining of those things. And so you could say God is doing it, but what method is he using to do it? He's using the method of leaving intelligent beings free to either harmonize and trust God and follow his ways or to break his designs and reap the results. Ellen G. White grew in her faith and understanding of reality. Yet, God's spokespersons through all history have always written to the entire human population, not just to the mature, they've written to the children as well, the spiritually immature who needed the threats of punishment to stop their destructive behavior. Why didn't I include these quotes in my original presentation? Because I knew, number one, what they actually meant, explained to you here, I understood design law. I knew about Ellen White's first elected messages quote and where she says similar things in other places. And I know God is not the source of inflicted punishment, but takes that role on his shoulders like a loving parent, allows himself to be seen that way for the immature's sake. But I don't want to perpetuate the view based on imposed law that has kept the church impotent and obstructed our ability to take the final message to the world. So I want to thank those of you online who sent in the question. I think from time to time it's important to step back and look at some of these types of quotes and unpack them like we just did. So thank you for sending those in. But when you look at the entire inspired record, you'll discover that God is the creator. His laws are design laws. Sin is deviation from his design that causes pain, suffering, and death. And God is our healer and savior. He's been working through Christ and the Holy Spirit to restore us back to his design. That's the truth. So looking back to our lesson now, uh, lesson seven, Paul's first missionary journey, the memory text is Acts 13, 38 and 39. And it says, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him. Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. That was the NIV version. So what does the text mean? Was God able to forgive sins without the death of Jesus? If Jesus didn't die for us, would that mean God is unforgiving toward us? Did God become forgiving toward us only because Jesus died for us? 
Was it Jesus' death and the presentation of his blood that influenced God to move from a position of unforgiveness to a position of forgiveness? I'm glad I heard a mumbling of no for most of these questions. (laughs) If you're not sure, consider these Bible verses. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Or John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or 1 John 4, 19. And God showed his love for us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. Or 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Or Romans 5.8. But God has shown us how much he loves us in that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Do these texts sound like a God that needed Christ to do something to him to forgive? Can we say then that whatever Paul meant in the Bible verse in Acts here, where he says, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, unquote, that it doesn't mean that through Jesus, God has changed from unforgiving to forgiving. It doesn't mean that. Can we say that? It doesn't mean that God was either unwilling or unable to forgive due to some legal hindrance upon him. It doesn't mean that. Do you understand Paul's words as you read this through design law? Hopefully this class does. Or through imposed law? Through the imposed law lens, many have construed the idea that Jesus' death was necessary to pay a legal penalty in order to get God to be able to legally pardon and or forgive. This is not so. What evidence do we have to demonstrate that I'm correct on this? We always want to look at the evidence. Do you remember when Jesus healed the paralytic that was let down through the ceiling? Remember the story? Jesus said something right before he healed him. Remember what he said? So that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? Did Jesus need his blood presented to him so he could do so? Think that through. That's kind of silly, isn't it? I'd forgive you, but I haven't... uh, Let me cut myself. Okay, now I can forgive you. That really is kind of silly. Was this man, who was the paralytic, did he have his sins forgiven? In the legal model, if God, the ruler of the universe, forgives someone their sins, that means they are saved. In other words, there is a connection between the forgiving of sins and salvation in the legal model that is linked. In the legal model, the saved have their sins forgiven, but the unsaved do not have their sins forgiven. Am I right or wrong about that? That's how it's presented. It's linked. Then think about this. What about those who crucified Christ? Standing around mocking, jeering, hating, tempting. Were they forgiven by God? Jesus said, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Is Jesus God? Does he have the authority on earth to forgive sins? He just forgave them. Are they saved? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know what happened to them in their lives. They could have changed. Uh, I think we do know that happened to some. We do know. Caiaphas, Annas, they doubled down. They went back afterwards. They wanted Pilate uh, They put a guard around. They did not repent. They did not uh, show remorse. They did not seek to follow Christ. So the leadership there did not. We, we, we have a good record of that. There could have been some individuals that might have. But I'm talking about the soldiers on the cross. We don't know what happened to them. Yeah, we're not talking about the soldiers. We're talking about the, the mockers, the, 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 the Jewish leadership that was standing there. Uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He forgave them. Or did he only forgive the Romans? He didn't forgive the the Jews. He held it against them. Or did he forgive them all? So the point I'm making here is I'm breaking by evidence the linkage between God forgiving a sinner and salvation. They're not directly linked. 
You can be forgiven by God, as these people were, and still lost. Legal model breaks down on issues like this. It does not compute. If the judge here in the court, when you come to face him for your crimes, pardons you, if the president commutes the sentence and pardons you, you are legally set free. And because they're stuck in the wrong legal model, the people who teach this, they don't, they can't actually make sense of reality and what actually happened here. Every single person who is lost is forgiven by God. That's correct. So I'll help you make, when you come out of the imposed law into design law, it is just so simple to understand. It's not confusing at all. A child disobeys his parents' instructions to avoid the household cleaners and under the sink, and for some reason the child drinks some of these poisons and they are dying from the poison. Now walk through the forgiveness question issues with me on this circumstance. If the parent refused to forgive the child, that certainly might lead the parent to not act to save the child. However, I doubt that's really typically the way things happen. If the parent did forgive, which is most likely every parent instantly would, would the forgiveness of the parent, I forgive you, I forgive you, sweetie, does the forgiveness save the child? Get your mind. So It's so obvious. I'm not against you. I forgive you. I want your life. I want your health. But the forgiveness doesn't save them. Would there be actions necessary beyond the forgiveness that the parent would need to take in order to save the child? Yes. Now, it's certainly true that if God were unforgiving, that the parent were unforgiving, they wouldn't take the action to save. That's true. So it is necessary that God be forgiving toward us. There's no question. If he was unforgiving toward us, he would just let us die. So it's necessary he's forgiving toward us. That's great. It's wonderful news. God forgives us. It's great. We can, be, we, can, we can have confidence to know he's not against us if God is for us. But his forgiveness alone was not sufficient to save us. He had to do more, and he did more. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He's acting to fix the problem. So the parent whose child is poisoned has to take action beyond their forgiveness, and they offer the child an antidote. Here's an antidote. Take this. It'll cancel the poison. But what if the child in some way is capable of refusing and will not take the antidote? If that were to happen, what would the consequence be? The child would die forgiven. That's how the wicked die. God forgave them. They refused the antidote. It's so simple when you come to design law. Do you see how simple this is? Now, in our relationships, if someone does another person wrong, cheats them, lies to them, betrays them, what is necessary for reconciliation of the relationship? Does the person who's been wronged have to forgive if there's to be reconciliation? Yes. yes, they do. Does the offender, the wrongdoer, have to repent and have a change of heart to become trustworthy if there's to be genuine reconciliation? Yes. yes. Both are required for reconciliation. And if the one who committed the wrong were actually in the act of doing wrong, like the example I gave, introduce some toxin into themselves... Would the forgiveness and repentance alone resolve their condition? No, they need even more. They need a remedy also is necessary. Now, what if the offender, the one who's done wrong, after they've done wrong, believes that the offended person, the one they've wronged, is mad at them, is angry at them, wants to punish them, is required even by law to punish them for their wrong? Could that be a problem if that's the person who holds the remedy they need? That's how we teach Christianity. We put barriers up to people experiencing the restoration, regeneration, healing by teaching that God is the one who will have to punish you for your wrong. It's such a gross distortion. I'm going to tell you again, the penal substitutionary theory of Christianity is a lie. It is an infection. It's part of the wine of Babylon. We will never finish the work as long as we're teaching that view. We have to come back to design law. Yes? I would say, as I'm listening to you, that we just need to be careful not to box God into theories. 
but allow him to work outside of our theories. Because there's danger that we can explain God within a box. And if he acts outside of the box, we're like, no, we have to bring him to the box to explain his actions. Because God is God. Um, think of Abraham. Sacrificing a son was so out there, it's like what the heathen were doing. He were in, in, he had to exhibit obedience. And if we had to rationalize everything within design law or whatever it is, the method that we're using, I believe that there's danger that we're going to box God and not be able to see outside of that. So what are you suggesting then? If we don't have some parameters to test, a message comes from an angel. An angel of light presents himself to us with a message. We don't have any parameters. We just, what are the parameters? A relationship with Christ. So a relationship. Abraham understood God's voice. He was able to discern God's voice versus was his own spirit telling him to do this crazy thing or was it God? He had to have a relationship. So listening to the inner voice is the way we should go. No. Having a relationship with Christ. Based on? On a daily walk with him. Based on? How do you walk with him? Do you hold his hand physically? Do you meet him and see his face physically? What are you doing to walk, walk with him? to him every day. You so, read his word and you listen to his voice. Listen, so where's that voice coming from? It's coming from reading scripture, from hearing his voice in your heart. <laughs> okay, so you're looking at the evidences that God has put forth for us in his three books. The book of nature the book of scripture, and the book of experience, how life actually works. And as you evaluate those three together and harmonize those, you come into, with the light and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, the, the dots begin to connect and you begin to see and understand and experience this being created reality. This isn't all an evidence-based thing. And so we don't, we, when we get a new message, we do harmonize it with, just as the scripture says, we test the spirits by the word. We don't simply go, well, I've got a box, but there's a difference between trying to put God in your box and trying to trust God, that he can work outside of the box. The way I would say what you're saying, and it may not, may be a completely different idea, and if it is, that's okay, is that we have to be open to grow in truth. Truth is unfolding. God is infinite. We're finite. Exactly. We never stop moving forward in our knowledge of the truth. We don't lay down a dogma and say, this is the final word. We're open for evidence to lead us to newer and deeper and more grand understandings. That's absolutely what we teach in this class. We're always growing, always advancing. So, yes, I agree completely. So putting it all together, this passage in Acts uh, 13, 38, and 39, I'm going to read it to you from the remedy. So my dear friends, I want you to understand that it is through Jesus that sinfulness in our hearts remits and we are restored to God's original ideal. Through what he achieved, every person who trusts him is healed and set right from every defect of character that the diagnostic code given through Moses could not fix. I think this is the true message of Scripture. God, through Christ, is working to heal and restore his children back into his original design that he intended mankind and Adam to be. That's the message of Scripture. Some of you know I'm working on a paraphrase now of the Psalms. And in conjunction with this idea of healing from sin and the forgiveness of sins, I'm going to share with you the, my paraphrase of Psalms 31. And uh, I will tell you, for those who didn't hear me last week, the Psalms are much more vulnerable to the corruption of the biases than the New Testament because it is so much for, removed, so much of the Hebrew, they don't even know what it means. Uh, and then one Hebrew word can have up to a hundred English words. And so I think the translation and translators have done a job of good integrity, meaning they're honest and they're doing their best and it's what they believe it means. But just read a wide range of various translations out there. You will see that in many, many verses in every Psalms, there are verses that are contradictory in the different translations because the Hebrew is so amorphous in so many places. And I think the critical thing to get the true meaning is you have to understand the great controversy over God's character view the word as a whole, comparing all the various parts, the grand central theme it says in the book Education. You have to understand God's design laws, as there's laws, and you've got to understand his character of love. So this is Psalms 31. Oh Lord, I come to you for healing. Don't let guilt and shame destroy me. Restore me to your perfect design. Listen to me, listen closely, and heal me, heal me quickly. Be my unfailing remedy, a healing sanctuary to renew me. Since you are my remedy and my sanctuary, reveal your character of love by recreating me in your image. Free me from fear and selfishness which has trapped me, for you are my remedy. 
I trust you, and I place my life in your hands. You will cure me, no matter the price, O Creator, God of reality. I hate the persistent use of false remedies. My confidence is in the Lord. I will celebrate and rejoice in your love, your healing design for life. For you saw the misery of my terminal condition and knew the cause of the sickness ravaging my inner self. You have not surrendered me to be enslaved by fear and selfishness, the enemy of your design, but have enabled me to stand free, renewed in truth and love. Pour your healing grace upon me, O Lord, lest I be crushed by guilt and shame. My eyes are swollen from crying. My heart is torn with sorrow and regret. My life is stuck, consumed with guilt, with reliving my mistakes, years wasted bemoaning the past. I'm exhausted, worn out with guilt. I'm getting weaker every day. My enemies, lies, fear, and selfishness have made me ashamed. My neighbors are tired of my self-loathing. My friends dread to hear more of my constant negativity. When they see me coming, they avoid me. They have moved on, put me out of their minds as if I were dead. I'm considered broken beyond repair. I hear criticism in every in the words of others. I'm terrified around people. They make plots to undermine me. They seek to crush my heart. But I put my trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My future is in your hands. Free me from fear and selfishness, my enemies, that constantly pursue me. Immerse your servant in your life-giving glory. Heal me with your unfailing love. Negate my shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. But let the unhealed be consumed by shame. May they lie silent in the grave. May the promotion of all false remedies be stopped, for the self-sufficient deny reality. They scorn God's design for life. Beyond counting are the benefits of your goodness, the treasures you have built into reality for all who humbly follow you. Those who trust you and follow your methods reap your blessings for all the universe to see. You eradicate their sin sickness by your presence, your secret plan, freeing them from the trap of the proud and the selfish. In your sanctuary, you defend them from words of the accuser. All praise and honor to you, Lord, for the wonders, for the wonders of his unfailing love and rest, that rescued me when I was besieged by worldliness. Terrified, I cried, I have cut myself off from God. But you heard my plea for mercy when I called out to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful followers. The Lord preserves those who live in harmony with his design, but the arrogant who choose their own way, he leaves to reap their full reward. Be strong and confident, all you who hope in the Lord. So that's, did you, did you get a different feel? Now, if you go back and read Psalms 31 with this in mind, you will see it's there. You can, you can see it's there. It's in the Hebrew, what I've written here. It's in the Hebrew. But, it's written in such language that it, when you read it the first time in the other versions, you don't get this, but it's there. Sunday's lesson. The lesson makes a very powerful point. It says, God can operate only when we willingly place ourselves in a position where he can use us. God can operate only when we willingly place ourselves in a position where he can use us. Do you agree or disagree? In the case of Jonah, it's kind of questionable. God was operating despite Jonah's best efforts to get away from him. Oh, no, that was part of the plan. No, no, no. God has foreknowledge. God knew his part. God knew exactly Jonah's response, and that's the response God needed to actually reach the people who worship a fish god. Dagon. He needed him delivered by a fish. <laughs> Seriously, I think it was all part of God's plan. God has foreknowledge. He knew, he, this was not a surprise to God. He knew exactly how it was going to unfold. And he had lessons not only for the, for the Ninevites, but he had lessons for us down through history. But I'm looking at it from Jonah's standpoint. You said a willing person. He didn't seem willing. He was really making his best efforts to get away. Finally, he just said, just kill me. Throw me overboard. I'm done. That wasn't a willing, cooperative person. So what is it that God wants to achieve? Do you think Jonah was forced against his will? Is that how God works? No. no. So it was Jonah forced against his will? No. no. Or was Jonah grudgingly willing? <laughs> no, seriously, there is really a difference. Jonah, Jonah eventually was willing, but he had to be persuaded with evidences. He had biases. He had prejudices. He had hatred for a people in his heart. 
and he knew God. He wanted the Ninevites to die, and he knew God was not going to do it. He was going to forgive them. (laughs) And that was the problem. And this is a huge lesson for us. But what God wants to achieve, what does he want? Does he want coercive obedience where he's got power, we have a whip over our head, we know if we step out of line we're going to be crushed and so we obey, and that's what God wants. No. No, he wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our loyalty, he wants our friendship. Can you get love, trust, loyalty, friendship by threatening people who don't love and trust you? No. No, so this is why we have to be willing. This is why it says in in he uh, excuse me, Romans 14, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. Because a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. They don't change. And so what God's trying to achieve can only be achieved through his methods of truth presented in love, leaving people free. Third paragraph I want to read to you. It says, A period of intercessory prayer and fasting preceded the departure of the missionaries, and in the context of laying on of hands was basically an act of consecration or commendation of God's grace. Uh, What do you think of intercessory prayer? What is the purpose of intercessory prayer? Is it to influence God to move him to do some act of kindness or goodness that God didn't want to do? Is that the purpose? You will discover that intercessory prayer is never to move God to do an act of goodness that is not in his heart already to do. However, you can pray to God to get him to do an act that he doesn't want to do and is not in his plan. You can get him to do that. Balaam. Not Balaam. Balaam did not get permission to curse the people. Kings, the quail, the food, the desert. Why did they get quail? Did God want them to have quail? What was God feeding them? God didn't want them to have quail. Who brought the quail? Why did he bring the quail? Because they prayed for it over and begged for it and pleaded for it and whined for it and cried for it. And God let them have the quail. So you can't, you don't need to have intercessory prayer to influence God to do something good. But if you whine and pray along with the kings, God, God warned them, told them over, you don't, don't do it, don't do it. Don't. But who chose their first two kings and anointed them? Because they insisted. This goes back to the point about willingness. If you insist to go down certain trails, God, and they're not healthy for you, God will warn you. God will direct you. God will advise you. God will uh, give evidence that's not for But at the end of the day, if you insist, he'll let you go. He might even help you experience the consequence of the choice so you can then learn a lesson and turn back. Better stop So, but back to the intercessory prayer. It's never to get God to do something good or kind that he would not want to do. Um, if God, but then if you say, well, if God always wants to do good, always wants to heal, always wants to save, then why do we even need to pray at all? He already wants to. It changes us. Well, then why pray for someone else? Ah, okay, okay, let's, let's, these are good questions. So, what are God's methods again? What are his methods? How does he achieve his goals? Does God violate free will? No. Does he force his way into someone's life? No. Thus, one aspect of intercessory prayer is the free will consent or request to ask God to take an interest where that person hasn't yet asked, but God comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to honor your request and step in. Just like you might ask Pastor so-and-so to go talk to my son for me. He might do that on your behalf. I'm here on your mom's behalf. And God might intervene or intercede on your behalf honoring your free will choice. So one aspect is, I've got several aspects, so if you, if you want to hear them all before your question. No, I just want to not, yeah. I just want to, I want to add. Okay, go ahead. So it's a sin, Samuel said it's a sin to stop praying. It would be a sin if I stopped praying for you. When you say praying, you have, to me, brought up something else. Because intercessory prayer is different than prayer for me. Prayer is conversation with God is with a friend. And so we never stop our conversations with God. We never stop our... But there are times we have specific types of conversations interceding for some circumstance, but that isn't what we necessarily do all the time. 
But we do pray all the time. We have conversations with him all the time. But some of those conversations are praise and thanksgiving and, and celebration and just tell him about your day, and right? Right, but in that particular prayer, he's talking about praying. Samuel's talking about praying for others. Who is this? Samuel says it would be a sin if I were to stop praying for you. But that wasn't indefinite. That was in a circumstance. There was an event happening. And, and until the event's resolved, I'm not going to stop praying until it's resolved and over. But it's gonna have, there's going to be a resolution. There's going to be an answer. And then I'm not going to continue to pray for you. But until then, it'd be like, uh, it would be a sin for me to take my hand off of your bleeding artery while it's still going to hemorrhage to death. That's how I see that. But I'm going to stay focused on solving this problem and interceding in your behalf until there's a resolution. Yes. Also, it's a sin for me. In other words, if I'm not acting God-like, then I'm destroying my relationship with God if I'm not working in behalf of others. God is always working in behalf of others. That's true love. And if we are not working in behalf of others, then we are separating ourselves from who we God intended us to be. So one aspect of that can be intercessory prayer. Right. Yes. So since God honors free choice, are you saying that intercessory prayer, in essence, gives God permission to take action? Yep, I am. Look at uh, Jan- Daniel chapter 10. Look at Daniel chapter 10. Daniel begins to pray for the king. And, um, and um, Gabriel comes and said, I, I, I sent 21 days ago. 21 days ago you began praying and I was sent instantly. But the prince of uh, Persia has been opposing me. And the prince of Persia, who's the prince of this world? So the prince of Persia, bigger or smaller than the whole world? Persia, bigger or smaller than the whole world? So the prince of Persia is beneath the prince of the world. Okay, so this is one of Satan's agents or angels working on King Darius. And Gabriel comes and he says, there's no one to help me except Michael. And I've got to go back because the prince of Greece is coming to help the prince of Persia. So he's getting reinforcements. And Daniel's prayer has mobilized heavenly agencies to come and intervene in that circumstance. To bring what? Why isn't Michael the only one that can help him? Aren't the, uh, isn't it our view that one-third of the angels rebel, two-thirds stayed loyal, right? Isn't it our view? So there's two to one on the good side. How come he's only got one other angel that can help him? What is that? Understand what the, what the reality is. What's the war? We live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets us up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Now, in this conflict, after Lucifer's gone out of heaven, who do we understand generally to have taken Lucifer's place in heaven? Gabriel now is the one who stands closest to God in that position. So of the angelic host, who knows the most about God, his methods, his character? Who has the most truth and knowledge about the kingdom of the created beings? Gabriel. So he says, there's no one to help me except Michael because Michael is who? Christ in his pre-incarnate form. And so only Michael knows more about the truth in God's kingdom. All the other angelic hosts, they don't know as much as Gabriel. They don't have as many wisdom. They don't have as much knowledge, insight, perspective on God. Gabriel's the closest to God of the created beings. So nobody can bring more light and truth to bear on the circumstance than Michael. And this is the issue, the light and truth into the mind of Darius. And we have agents of darkness trying to confuse and to, to incite fear. But we have the agents of truth and love pouring truth and love into the mind. This is what's happening. And then the, and then the king is left free to make his choice which side he's going with. But the prayers of Daniel mobilized and, and brought in those forces of light did not take freedom away. So this is one aspect. So one aspect brings God into the circumstance and invites him in to uh, intervene as God knows is best in the situation. Other aspects of intercessory prayer, as somebody else said, changes the prayer. You are impacted and changed by every action you take in life. It impacts you. So as you mobilize your energies towards praying for others, you're exercising circuits of altruism and compassion and other-centeredness, and and you're connecting with your higher power. And even if the other person ultimately rejects what you're praying for, you are drawing closer to your creator. So it's changing you. That's another aspect. Wait, I've got to move on. 
Okay, third, in God's design universe, you as a sentient being with energies and capacities through quantum connections can focus your energy impact and actually have an impact on a physiological level on another person. Just as you, through Newtonian physics, Newtonian physics is the physics of big things that you can pick and throw in, in motion, you can go to somebody and you can put pressure on a wound, you can clean a wound, you can do something directly with physical contact to help somebody. You can also, with love and good tension, focus your, your um, mental energies on helping another person, and there are measurable um, outcomes that improve their health and well-being. This is how God designed us. So I want to thank all of you here and online who pray for us in this ministry regularly. There's real power in prayer on multiple levels. Now, you had a comment. Well, I, was, I have a friend who uh, does believe that you shouldn't go to doctors and nurses and stuff, that if, if there's healing to be done, God will do it. Ask God, He will do it. So then why have nurses and doctors? Years later, uh, she, we got no conversation, and I said, well, I believe that God allowed, gives us the wisdom and allows us to participate in the healing of people because it's good for us to participate in the healing, physical healing of people. He can do it all himself, but it draws us into the process. The same way God draws us into the spiritual process of other people. No, that's right. He can do anything. He can send angels to all these people. Why do we need to fool them? It's for our our benefit. We, we prosper when the river of life flows through us. You know, we just just watch it happen. No, no, I agree completely, and I'd recommend that you refer her to the blog I wrote a few weeks ago on anointing oil in James. Is what is that? Is that a, is that a sacrament? Is that actually a medicinal? What does it mean? There's a blog on our website on the healing oil. I refer you to recommend you read that. On the last paragraph, let's see, we're moving into Monday's lesson, and the last paragraph says this passage does not say that the law has been abrogated. The law has not been abrogated. Abrogate means to make void or to repeal. I just want to point out, and we're asked the question, why is it necessary for any Christian writer to say to you, the Bible didn't say God's law has been abrogated, made void or, or, or repealed? Why is it necessary for someone to say that? Because if they, they can't. Ah, because they think the law is the type of law that is open to being repealed or or voided. What would it make any sense if they would have written in here? Nowhere does the Bible say that the law of gravity has been abrogated. <laughs> that would get, why are you saying that? Of course it hasn't been. That's silly, right? Any design law that you stick in there, it becomes silly. So a statement like this then becomes diagnostic evidence that the people who view it this way are stuck in human-imposed law. They're not seeing the reality, and thus they're ineffective in taking the three angels' message to the world. The three angels' message is the message to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Call back to design law, and as long as we're stuck in the imposed law, we're giving a distorted view of God and preventing people from coming to that final transformation for the second coming. We'll jump into Tuesday's lesson. Uh, first paragraph, uh, Acts 13, 38 through 9 presents the issue of the law's inability to justify an important doctoral, as an important doctoral concept. Despite the binding character of its moral commandments, the law is unable to bring justification because it cannot produce perfect obedience in those who observe it. Even if the law could produce perfect obedience in us, that perfect obedience cannot atone for past sins. Romans, and they quote Romans 13. 3.19 and Galatians, they reference uh, Romans 3.19 and Galatians 3.10 uh, and 11. Well, let's check those and see if those texts actually say anything about atoning for past sin. Let's see if they say anything about that at all. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Romans 3.19. Does that say anything about past sins being atoned for? No. That's uh, Galatians 3, 19 and 20. All who rely on observing the law are under the curse of the law, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. So again, there's nothing in here about that. What is the lesson trying to imply? 
perfect obedience cannot atone for past sins. Again, they're introducing a bias, a lie in my view about God's law, that sin is behavioral based on bad deeds. And as long as you hold the human law view of things, then their comment makes good sense. Um, Because in their view, if you suddenly start keeping the law, it doesn't make up for all the crimes you've committed in the past. So if in our society somebody murdered somebody 10, 15, 20 years ago, but since that murder, they've never murdered anybody again, they've been keeping the law since then, our legal justice system doesn't say, well, you've been keeping the law since then, so that crime doesn't count. No, that crime still counts. Okay, That's how they view God's law. And it's a corruption. When you come back to design law, though, you recognize that sins, all these bad stuff that we have done historically, are symptoms of hearts out of harmony with God's design. Jesus said, you can say, say if you commit adultery, bad behavior, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad behavior, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. He's telling us that the various behaviors that people do that are destructive and sinful are the manifestations of hearts that are not operating on love and truth. They're operating on fear and selfishness. They're corrupt in heart. That's why the plan of salvation is to write on your heart God's law, recreate you in the inner man, give, take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, circumcision the heart by the spirit, have the mind of Christ, be renewed in the inner man. All these metaphors are about transformation within. And so, when you come back to the design law model, it'd be like somebody saying, hey, when you were a child, you vomited uh, when you were sick all over your mother's new carpet. (laughs) It was really gross and disgusting. Yeah, it's true, it was. It was a symptom of how sick I was. Well, it's not really relevant unless you're sick today. You know, if you were named come up for children's department leader in your church, and they said, well, you know what, when she was seven, she had uh, viral gastroenteritis and vomited and had diarrhea, and it was a terrible mess. (laughs) The board would go... Why are you bringing that up? <laughs> well, because it was gross and disgusting. It was awful. It was horrible. It smelled bad. It was just, it was like, okay, I'm sure, but, but are they sick today? Are they vomiting and contagious today? Well, no, they're actually quite healthy. Then it's not relevant, is it? You see, when you're in design law, we will look back on our lives and all of us will have gross, disgusting symptomology that we had while we were still in sin, before we were reborn, before our hearts were renewed. But those are symptoms. And so, let me talk to you about this atoning. Let me give you a couple of Bible verses before we finish up. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Wait a second. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.19, we read it earlier. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Hmm, that doesn't fit that legal model either, does it? How about this one? You want to know what actually how God deals with past sins? You want to know? Listen to Peter. 1 Peter 1, 5-9. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For you possess, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. What happened to past sins? Did it say, did Peter say, and he has forgotten that his records in heaven have had the past sins erased? Is that what he said? That, that he, he has forgotten that Jesus paid the penalty of punishment for his past sins. Is that what he said? No, he has forgotten that he has been cleansed. You've been healed. And if you notice what was described, it was describing this entire character, growth, a transformation, blossoming into godliness. That was being described here. And if you don't have that transformation of character, you've forgotten. He's erased the fear. He's erased the selfishness. He's planted the good seed, and you're to be growing in godliness. That's the plan of salvation. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so awed 
as we get glimpses of your goodness, your amazing character of love, your design and how you run your universe, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and enlighten our minds. Put the pieces together. Let us see it more clearly. Let's experience your presence. Make us effective to take this final message to the world that you will come soon and we can live in your glory forever. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.